Good to see everyone out this evening. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I want to begin by just reading a verse here in Ephesians chapter 5. If you recall the context of this at all, you find that Paul begins speaking about different relationships, and specifically that of the marriage relationship. And as he gets to the conclusion of the matter here, as he talks about how the husband and the wife ought to treat each other, he gets to verse 31 and he quotes a passage from Genesis chapter 2, and then he says in verse 32, this mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So you see that Paul makes a connection between Christ and the church and the marriage relationship. And that's uh, a connection, it's interesting to say the least, but a connection that we need to see the significance of. When, when you talk to a doctor... When, when we are trying to get the results of a, you know, whether it be a medical exam or just some kind of test that we took, and we tend to be worried and anxious whenever we do take those medical exams or tests, when, when they give us the results and they're discussing what it looks like, we don't want them to use all of the most technical language possible. We don't want, I mean, they've been through years of education and they know, you know, what the big long term for the common cold is, but we don't want them to use that kind of lingo. We, we want them to talk to us like just like a regular person. We want them to talk to us like we're in elementary school. We just want to know, do I have a cold or do I not? Do I have the flu or not? Uh, and it wouldn't be helpful if they tried to use those terms with us because we are not starting on the same page. I think the same is true with the Bible over and over again. If we don't start on the same page as God and, bring, and, and we try to bring other considerations into His commandments, we won't understand the point that he's, that he's really trying to make. And I think you see this especially in Ephesians chapter 5 as he makes this connection between husband and a wife and Christ and the church. He makes a strong point about Christ and the church through marriage. And so if, if we come to view marriage the way the world looks at marriage, as a patriarchal tyranny and nothing more, or, or even just an uninvested relationship that we can just throw away just like any other relationship, unless we come to this discussion with the same view that God has on marriage, we won't see what God is trying to tell us. And I would say that marriage is one of the topics that is, is most, or at least one of the most skewed when the world looks at it. Uh, they just have such a poor idea of what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to mean. And in fact, many people would just say that it's not a religious institution that God set up all the way back in the beginning. They would just neglect that fact or ignore it. But it is the case. And so I want to go through this, uh, just a few verses here at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. And I want to look at the, the commandments that he gives first to the wife, then the command that he gives to the husband, and make sure that we start with the proper premise. And what I mean by that is, look at it the way God does then make the ultimate application that he wants us to make at the very end of the chapter. So first I want to start with, uh, in the very beginning, in verse 22, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, 
so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. What's interesting, just from the beginning, is that you only get three verses here of, what, of, of commands to the wife, and then you have a lot more description and detail that's given instruction, that's given to the husband. But from the very beginning, I would say that already, if, if someone who was not a Christian, someone who came to this from a purely worldly perspective, they would absolutely despise this, because this is indeed a role of submission. It's a role of service and servitude. Now, immediately as I, as I say that, I think some might, because of some influences from the world, think of it as, you know, because that is the case, it is a role of service, it, it immediately means it's a role of inferiority, and, and, and God or Paul is just, a, you know, a chauvinist. Well, clearly that's not the case. And in fact, when you think about how we look at a role of submission and a role of service, we need to be so careful that we don't agree with the world. Because if we take that stance that it immediately means inferiority, didn't we just look at John chapter 13 last week and see how Jesus himself was a servant? So if we have any agreement, any notion like the world does about this, immediately what we're going to have to face is we think that Christ was inferior since he girded himself with a towel. But we know better, right? At least I hope we do. Because we believe what the text, we believe what God has to say about the matter, and so um, that doesn't just immediately mean that it is a role of inferiority. But we don't want to take away from the fact that this command is a role of submission. Now, when you look at, at why he says that wives are to be subject, let me just ask: Is it because husbands are always right? Wives, is do you? Respect your husband, and do you obey You know that, that final word, if, if need be, if there's a judgment call that needs to be made? Do you respect that because your husband is Mr. Right? Or always right. <laughs> there, was a, there was a woman who, uh, I heard a story about a woman who was beginning to look for a man to uh, become a wife to. She wanted to get married, and she was looking for Mr. Right. She didn't realize, though, that his first name was going to be always. And sometimes people... You know, in that endeavor, have that kind of misconception or have that kind of confusion. But clearly, this command isn't given because you're going to be married to Mr. Always Right. What does he say that this is so important to, to keep in, this, uh, in, in our obedience to it or in the wife's obedience to it? It's not because he's always right, but it's because really this comes down to are you willing to serve the Lord? At the very beginning, of, or at the very end of verse 22, he says, Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. You actually see the same kind of language when it talks about slaves. In Ephesians chapter 6, not too, not too far from here. In verse 5, he says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, does he say that slaves have to be obedient to their masters because their master was always good? Or always a righteous man? Or always a Christian? That's not what he says. But it's the same reasoning that you see in verse 22 of chapter 5. As to the Lord. And not just, not just doing it as he says in verse 6, by way of eye service, but truly true submission because we want to respect Christ's commandments. And so, obviously, it's not because they're always going to be just that easy to submit to, but it's because we want to respect our king. Over in Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, in verse 3, <coughs> 
Titus chapter 2 in verse 3, Paul says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now that, I think, is striking because, again, you have the reasoning behind this. You do this not because you're the perfect husband, but for the perfect husband. Because Christ is that ideal. And of course, not everybody's going to live up to that ideal. Really, nobody ever lives up to that ideal fully. We're striving to, but we know, that we know better. But we're doing this ultimately for Christ's honor. And so I just ask, if, 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 if you're somebody who looks at a command like this, where God says, this is a must, this is something I expect from you, and someone looks at that and says, I'm not willing to serve, or I'm only willing to serve up to this point, let me just ask, whose honor are you seeking? Are you seeking Christ's? Or are you seeking yourself, your own honor? And we need to ask ourselves that question or, uh, when it comes to this command. We need to make sure that we're being honest. Now, finally, with this point, I just want to ask another question. When it comes to this submission, does Christ say that you don't have to serve if your husband is just, just a blubbering idiot? Does he say, you know what? I understand that men can sometimes be pretty rash, and I understand that men aren't always very compassionate, and so I understand if you just have to veto every single thing that, that is said or done. We know better. He doesn't say that. But rather, in First uh, Peter chapter 3, you want to turn over there very quickly, in First Peter chapter 3, look at how he speaks about the example that a wife can have over her husband. How strong an example she can have for her husband. It says in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 3, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And so, yet again, another passage where we see, even those that are disobedient to the word, what is the best chance that, that you may have to win them over? Well, it's with your chaste example. It's with your servant example. And I, I don't think that it's wise to throw these commands. I don't think it's wise to throw this wisdom away just because especially the world hates it. And the world tends to have such an influence on us. Not j and sometimes it's in the most obscure of ways. It doesn't have to be just bad company literally within our midst. It can just be the bad company that we're inviting in through the television. And we need to make sure we're not being influenced in that way, in such a subtle way. So we need to be careful when we look at this and make sure that we're coming at it and viewing this the same way that God is going to view it. Because Christ, when he gave this command, I think he knew that, he, that there were going to be some husbands that just weren't perfect and just were not the ideal. Yet he gave the, man, the command anyway. And I think that there's a good reason for it because he's wiser and he knows best. So obviously, from the very beginning, this is just an unpopular thing to say. It's an unpopular thing to preach. It's an unpopular thing to, to exemplify. And yet, Christ says, you need to. Now, not only that, but you get to the command that's given to husbands. I want to take this verse by verse. But immediately, when you look at the kind of love that he says husbands are supposed to emulate, really looking at Christ's love, 
it, it, I, I say on the chart, it's an unthinkable command, and it's unthinkable because, again, if you come at it with the same standards the world does, it is not going to be easy to fulfill. Beginning in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 25 he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, just we'll stop there and we'll pick back up in verse 28 in just a moment. But how does Paul be, begin talking about the husband's responsibility? He begins by talking in terms of doing all for the purpose of bringing them closer to God. This, I do think, is a difficult command because it's so easy to get caught up in all of the other things, all of the material things. And it's so easy to get caught up in that and let it over, uh, overlook the spiritual things. There are a lot of fellows who sacrifice a lot of time and a lot of energy to give their wives a nice big house, a newer car, fancier clothes, but, but are we sacrificing things to help them get to heaven? <laughs> because that's the main thing. What, what did Christ say? It profits a man nothing to gain the whole world uh, and forfeit his soul, well, except for maybe some nicer clothes. No, he didn't say that. He said it's not worth it if you lose your soul. And so our, our, when it comes to this command and, and, and the fact that we are striving like Jesus to, to bring them closer to God as he tried to do everything that he did to present the, uh, his wife, the, the church, as blameless and spotless, are we spending more time in this endeavor discussing how others view our wives? Or are we spending more time looking at how God views us? Are we looking to, to, to kind of craft the picture-perfect wife, or are we looking to help lead a Bible beauty? I hope it's the latter. I hope we're not trying to, to force upon our wives something because we are supposed to lead in the home. I hope we're not trying to force upon our wives some silly perspective, some silly image that you only find on social media or online. Because ultimately, it's never going to cut it. We give it an impossible standard. And, and, I'm, and I feel so strongly about this because so often you have, you have women who... One thing that I absolutely hate is, is certain social media things like TikTok. There's all kinds of videos where these women are, are showing young girls and, and even older women about how to you know, put even more makeup on and how to look prettier and prettier. What I hate about this is you have videos and videos and videos telling even Christian women that you're not enough because you don't look like the rest of the world. You don't look the way the rest of the worldly women look. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want Paige to look like the world. I want her to look like Sarah. I want her to look like Ruth. And let me tell you, if, 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 if our wives look like that, just like it says in the Proverbs, they, they are what they are going to bring honor to our name, specifically because they look different. So I don't want Paige to look beautiful in the world's terms. If the world can't tell she's already beautiful, they're messed up, not her. You know, going beyond that, what leads more towards God? Spending more time and overtime at the office or going to a gospel meeting together? Again, the husband is supposed to lead. What leads more 
to spiritual things, more to a deeper relationship with God. And I think we can tell. Now, the command to love, obviously, is more involved than just merely you know, doing my part. You continue on in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. He says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. You see how he continues to talk about the love that a husband is supposed to have for his wife. Again, you, you see this notion of nourishing and cherishing. Especially when you compare this to Christ. Was the mind of Christ ever the, the notion of, okay, they're going to have to prove themselves to me first before I ever gird myself with a towel? No, as we already looked at in John chapter 13, it should have been that the disciples were clamoring over each other to serve him. But he's the first one. He makes the first move. And he never has the attitude of, I'm not going to move a finger until they respect me. <laughs> I'm not going to do one thing that I'm, that I'm supposed to do because, because they have not shown me the proper honor. You have a lot of husbands that say things like that, or maybe not say things like that, but they sure do act like it. Let me tell you, that's not leadership. That, that's weakness. That may be how the world leads, but let me tell you, whenever I see that, I just see a weak-willed man. A man who has not girded up his loins and decided that he is going to do what God says he must do. That's weakness. And so when he says nourisher, again, this is the notion of how do you nourish yourself? How do you cherish your own body? I know there are lots of people who get more kind of cynical in their language just about themselves. But, but even with that being said, even if you're someone like that, when you're hungry, you don't really wait that long to satisfy that hunger. Oh, when you're in pain... Do you let that linger? Or do you immediately go and get the painkillers? Do you immediately go to the doctor to make sure that this gets resolved? You don't, when it's us that is in a great deal of pain, we don't linger and say, oh, well, I, I don't really care. No, we care a lot. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be in pain consistently and constantly. And so we're immediate. And so I think one of the things that he's trying to get across is if you're nourishing your wife, if you are cherishing your wife as your own body, it's going to be with the same immediacy, it's going to be with the same urgency, and with the same priority. That, that I'm going to work just as hard to make sure as, the, as, as I lead that she is nourished, that she is, is that, that hunger is satisfied in the same way I would satisfy my own hunger, that that, that pain is resolved the way I would satisfy or resolve my, my own pain if I was hurt. And so th th this is very active care. It's not passive and it's not they're going to have to show themselves and prove themselves first. It's active and it is proactive. It, it, it's, it's more than that. It's proactive. So this is a very costly love indeed. It's a very sacrificial kind of love. We already looked at how sacrificial in verse 25 as he speaks of the example of Christ that he even gave himself for his bride. But you go to the very beginning of Ephesians chapter 5 and as he says that you need to be imitators of God as beloved children how so? In verse 2 and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma consistently when it talks about the love of Christ it doesn't it consistently doesn't forget the cross it consistently brings that up that sacrifice that willingness to give 
self up. Now, I, I would venture to say that today, I think perhaps even a good portion of the world would agree that a man should die for his wife. But, what if you had a situation where there is a man who has been faithful to the utmost degree, and, and he has strived to, to lead his wife in a good way, in a righteous way, and, and he, as he's been faithful, he has shown much love, and he has sacrificed so much for her, how would the world respond if that man was betrayed by his wife, and she was unfaithful? And not just once, but several times, and several more times, and several other times. You know, the way the world would look at that is, oh, she, no, she's been, she needs to lie in it. You just let that go. She, she's completely lost any right for your love. She, she, she has lost any, any right to say that she has claim over, over the benefits of being married to you. That's the world. You just drop her as soon as she hurts you. I don't think that that is the leadership you see with Christ. That's not the kind of love you see with Christ. Does loving leadership sound like, well, she's not doing her part, so I'm not going to do mine. You know what? She, the house is just a mess. The kids are going crazy. And so you know what? I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to stay at home all week. I'm not going to do my part. I'm, I'm going to quit providing. <sighs> Good job. You look just like the rest of the world. Again, weak. Not like Christ. Not like a strong leader. And so we need, again, to make sure that we come to this conversation, come to this topic, looking at it through the lens of the Bible, not the lens of the rest of the world. Because let, rest assured, that's going to lead to even more disaster and catastrophe. Now, with all of this being said, this leads us to, I think, the ultimate application. As you get to verse 31, after he talks about the relationship between the wife and the husband, and he's already made some of these connections to Christ, it's not like he's been, you know, hiding, you know, some secret. He says in verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, as he just quoted Genesis chapter 2. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Just a couple, or a few applications that I think we need to make when we, as we get to the end of Ephesians chapter 5. And the first of which being that your example matters. Your example is teaching something about Christ and the church. Especially, specifically, if you are buried. This is not just some trivial matter. This is something that has great importance. It's too important to act nonchalantly about. When we are out in public, we want to make sure that when, as we speak about our spouse, the husband or the wife, as, as we react towards our spouse, we want to make sure that people see as the great responsibility it is. So how are you exemplifying your respective role? Wives, when you're with friends, uh, if, you, if you have a secular job, when you're with your co-workers, how do you talk about your husband? As that blubbering idiot, idiot that we talked about earlier, oh, you just, he, he, you, should, you should hear some of the things he says. What a, what a moron. You know, I don't think Sarah ever talked like that about Abram, Abraham. Husbands, you know, vice versa. When you talk to you know the guys, and when you talk to your fellow, do you, do you say some some similar things like, oh, you know, she, she, she just nag, nag, nag. Again, 
You sound like someone, but it's not Christ. And so we need to be careful about the examples that we are setting. Are we emulating the rest of the world or are we imitating Christ? And remember, this is too great a responsibility to take for granted. We need to make sure that when people look at us, they see there's something different about that. And we want to be able to lead in husbands, to lead in such a way that they would, when they hear a passage like this, man, if he is leading in such a way, not to say that, you know, he's perfect, but if he's leading in this good of a way, such a loving way towards his wife, how good a relationship it must be to have Christ. And again, with wives, just the same. Look, look at how, look at how she submits to her husband. And, and even when it's not the easiest moments to do so, might that teach them about the need to submit to Christ even when it's hard, even when it becomes difficult? I think it would. Well, not only that, but if we try to mix this order of roles up, if, we, if, if the, the wife tries to act like the husband or the husband tries to act like the wife, rest assured our relationship with God has gone awry somewhere. Now, in one way or another, it's indicative of greater rebellion somewhere in our lives. Uh, I remember, um, you know, there, there, was, there was a preacher that was studying with a young couple, and they were doing the, the just like pre-marriage counseling just to make sure that they had the proper mindset before they got married, make sure that they were willing to do these commandments. And, and he said, why don't you read Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 33, where he says that husbands, you, you need to love your wife, and wives, you need to respect your husbands. He looked at, each of the preacher looked at the woman and the man, the prospective spouses, and, and he said, you know, so Joe, what do you think she wants more, respect or love? And Joe just said, well, I, I think she wants respect more. And then he looked over at the woman and, and, and he said, Cindy, do you think that he wants love or respect more? And she said, I think he probably wants love. And he looked at them and he said, you know what you've just done? You've completely reversed what God said the order's supposed to be. And for a few moments, they kind of just sat there, looked back, and they, oh, you know what? I changed my answer. <laughs> but again, I, I think that kind of tells us how easy it is to be influenced. So are we being influenced in that way? And, and you know, beyond that, when you look at these kinds of commandments, no matter how difficult or unpopular they may be, when you think about the relationship that everyone here who is a Christian has with Christ, I don't think anyone in this room would dare say, I'm only willing to go this far for God. If he asks for any farther, anywhere past this line that I'm drawing, I'm sorry, I'm out. No one here would dare say that, at least publicly. But that is what we say, or what we sow when we don't abide by these commandments. I'm not willing to go that far for God. And so we need to be careful that we're not looking at it the same way the world does. Finally, marriage shows us what matters most. One of the reasons I love this passage is because here you have a very clear example of one of the shadows of Christ. And it's, it, 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 when you look back at Genesis chapter 2, in verse 24, as, as that's what's quoted in, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31, you wouldn't think, oh, this is talking about Christ initially. But then Paul reaches back and he says, no, it was. Well, how was it? When, when God institutes marriage, when he's trying to make a point about the relationship between Christ and the church, do you think that God's main point all the way back in Genesis was that you, you need a spouse 
to find meaning in life, to, to have any meaning in life. If you don't have a spouse, well, then you've missed it. You know, as, as Adam goes through and naming all of the different animals, he sees, he sees the fact that there is no companion suitable for him. And so God provides that companion that's suitable for him. But the, but the principle that you're supposed to learn there is not that you must have a spouse to find any meaning in life, to find any habit. That's not the point. The point that God is trying to make is you need companionship with me to have meaning in life. And if you don't have that companionship, what do you have? <laughs> Nothing but dust and ashes and vain glory that the world has to offer that will rot and rust and, and be completely unvaluable in the end. And so as we conclude thinking about some of the things we've talked about in Ephesians chapter 5, the main question is, do you have this companionship? Have you entered into this covenant with God? Because it is a marriage covenant. You may be a Christian, and you've already made those vows. You've entered into that covenant, and, and, and you don't get to backtrack. But maybe you have gone astray, and maybe you've been, become unfaithful even. It may be that you need to renew those vows. And let me tell you, you can do that tonight. You can even, in your pew, while we're singing these hymns to God, you can make your life right with God. And one of the most beautiful themes that you see all the way throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New, from Genesis to Revelation, is that God is that faithful husband with his arms open, waiting. <laughs> so much like Hosea. If you are not a Christian... What it takes is the devotion that we've been talking about. This marriage-like devotion where someone says, I am yours and yours alone and I will seek no one other than you. And I will receive no one other than you. What, what a beautiful relationship. That's what it takes if we want to become a Christian. Are you willing to go that far? Are you willing to enter that kind of covenant? If you are... What it takes is, is even still some ceremony. You have to repent of everything he says to let go of. You have to confess, pledge yourself to him. Confess that, that he is the son of the living God, that he is king. And that ceremony, being baptized into his death to rise in newness of life, that matters. Because that is the very moment that we enter that covenant. And so are you willing to become a Christian? If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward and let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing the invitation song.